Please take your copy of the Bible and turn with me to the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John. I think it would be impossible to over-exaggerate the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As compelling evidence as there is of this historic event, there is benefit for us to be reminded from time to time that this resurrection story is a story within a story. And and while there is benefit clearly to celebrate and to worship the empty tomb, there is also value in us seeing how this dramatic and pivotal chapter falls in the overall story of the Bible. Let me just give that overall story to you real quick. Chapter 1 of the story of the Bible is creation. God created everything good and it had a perfect design. All that pointed back to him to worship him and to give him the proper honor that he deserved. The second chapter is that of sin. I remember as a little boy, we had this little board game. It was called Perfection. And in perfection, you would get all these little pieces. Some were shaped as a star, some as a cross, some as a moon, some as a triangle, some as a square. And you would try to fit them in its proper location. All the while, there was a timer going off, right? And if you didn't get all those pieces in place in time, what would happen? Poof! All these pieces would fly into the air, bringing chaos with it. And that's what sin did. Everything at one time was good. And when man and woman disobeyed God, corruption erupted. And we still see evidence of that to this very day. We look around and we see life is not valued, though it has been made in the image of God. We look around and people will judge one another based on the color of their skin. There is a blurring of lines. Am I a man or am I a woman? There is a blurring of even the definition of marriage. And and how is it that we could have a healthy upbringing of children? This extends even into disease and sickness, whether it's cancer, whether it's heart disease or anything else. All of this as a result of that, that eruption of sin. We still see it in the effects of death, where it was Adam and Eve's Two boys that one of them killed the other. The third chapter in this overall story is people. God raised up a people for himself called the Israelites. And they would learn of the attributes of the character of God. And he would also lay out for the the expectations of how they had to live for God. But unsurprisingly, because of this corruption, none of them were able to follow that. But from this line of people, from this genealogy would come the fourth chapter, the Savior. This Savior would come, Jesus, the very Son of God would come. And he would reverse the curse of sin and death. He would take it upon himself on the cross and then raise triumphantly over death by raising from the dead three days later. And then the fifth chapter is the church. 
where this message has been left with you and I to carry it, not only into our communities, but around the world. And that leads us to the sixth and final chapter, which is this restoration. Because of the resurrection, there will be a new heaven and a new earth and a returning to what God has designed us to be and how to live. So this story is a story within a story. And if you would permit me today, I want to just move off from that familiar territory of Resurrection Sunday of the empty tomb and hit another passage here in John chapter 11. In Jesus' life and ministry, there were multiple times where he predicted that he would not only die, but he would raise to life again. I remember Mark chapter 8 Verse 31, where it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. In John chapter 2, Jesus turns over the tables there in the temple. And do you remember what he said to the leaders there? Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days later. He wasn't speaking of this architectural structure Rather, he was speaking of his own body, the temple. And in Matthew 16, verse 4, where he parallels his life and ministry with that of Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of this large fish for three days and three nights and then came to life. And Jesus was in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. And then he too was resurrected. But in John chapter 11, he makes this bold claim. Not only will he be resurrected, do you remember what he says here at 11.25? He says, I am the resurrection. So what I want us to do this morning is to look at this passage together and why we will highlight verses 25 and 26 where he makes this bold claim. I don't think we're going to understand the significance of it unless we get a running start. So let's begin here now in John chapter 11 and we'll read the first three verses. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now there were some prominent families during Jesus' ministry, and this would certainly be one of them where he had these three siblings, Lazarus, a sister named Martha, and a sister named Mary. We would observe this family every so often throughout reading the New Testament. There was a time in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus visited them for a meal. And it was there where these two sisters, probably a lot like your family, were arguing over who was doing more work than the other. Do you remember that? And it was Jesus who who brought Martha and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but the one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. There is another instance that we would read about in the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John, and this is where Mary would take her hair and anoint Jesus' feet in preparation for his burial. So this is a familiar family to Jesus. It says here that they have a a brother whose name is Lazarus. 
The name means God has helped. And this Lazarus, this brother, is ill. Verse 3 says, Lord, he whom you love is ill. The word love here in the Greek language is that kind of brotherly love. It's the word phileo love. Now these women, these sisters had followed Jesus' ministry. They observed him heal perfect strangers to Jesus. Surely he will have a, a soft spot for one of his buddies, Lazarus. And so they come to him. As, as any of us should, when we are faced with the challenge, what do they do? They tell it to Jesus. You remember that old hymn that we've sing before? Are you weary and are you heavy laden? Tell it to Jesus. Are you grieving over joys departed? Tell it to Jesus alone. Tell it to Jesus. Tell it to Jesus. He is a friend that's well known. You've no other such a friend or brother. Tell it to Jesus alone. And so they are doing this. They were reminding Jesus in verse 3, Jesus, this is the one whom you love. It's as if to say, hey, I understand, Jesus, my love for you sometimes will waver back and forth between hot and cold, weak and intense. But I would remind you, Jesus, that your love is a consistent love, and you love this man, Lazarus, our brother. So we're just making it aware to you of his condition. Look with me at verse 4 then. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. If you were to ask this family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, do you want to be a family that glorifies God? I believe in all capital letters they would say yes with three exclamation points. They are committed to glorifying God. But God's plan for this family is an unusual one. When you and I think about, hey, why don't you glorify me? Or if we want you to glorify, be glorified in my life. We probably think of it this way. God, help me to, to sink the game-winning shot at the buzzer in the final four because then you would be glorified. Or God, you would be glorified in my life if you give me compliant children and I'll always be able to point back and say, hey, God did this. God, you would be glorified if you would give me this scholarship for college. But God's path for us to glorify him is often not what we would choose for ourselves. For this family to glorify God, there would be some pain that would be introduced into their life. There would be loss that they would experience. Now those of you, many of you already know the story and what's going to happen with Lazarus. And they're going to say, hey, see, Jesus answered their prayer. But what was the cause? What was the motive behind that answer? It was that Jesus and God would be glorified. This might be hard for us to understand this morning. The byproduct of that was that Mary and Martha would experience relief from their pain. But it wasn't the primary purpose. God's desire is to be glorified. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, he said, I am the Lord That is my name, and my glory will I not give to another. 
So then let's look at this. This is a very puzzling couple of sentences here in verses 5 and 6. Follow along with me. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Here's a theme. God loves this family. Verse 6. So when he had heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now if ever there were a word that were out of place, it would be the word so here. We would think it would say, but, that it would say something like this. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, but when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Wouldn't that fit better? It's like saying this, I love my wife, Melody, so I forgot our anniversary. I mean, that is the line. That's the rationale of these two verses. So how can it be that God's love is expressed to these two sisters by delaying an extra two days and not going immediately to rescue this Lazarus guy from his sickness? Well, I would remind you of this. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says, With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. A great Bible pastor was J.C. Ryle. He said, the highest degree of faith is able to wait, sit still, and not complain. And this is what Mary and Martha are asked to do. There is this delay of two additional days. Now let's consider verses 7 and 8. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Now, if we would understand our context, look with me at John chapter 10, beginning verse 30, where Jesus makes this claim. He says, I and the Father are one. In that statement, he is identifying himself as God. Look at the response in verse 31, chapter 10. The Jews picked up stones and again to stone him. This is some mysterious stuff going on here. One, you have a family that is committed to the glory of God. And God's going to say, I'm going to glorify myself through this family, but I'm going to do it through pain. Not only am I going to do it that way, but I'm going to delay. So there's going to be this two additional days of them waiting. And then Jesus' route, Jesus' path is a very different one than we might expect. It actually goes through some dangerous territory. Now, in the interest of time, let me skip down to verse 17, where he arrives there in Bethany. Verse 17 says, Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, let's just do a little math here, okay? Here's what we think has happened. When the messenger, that's recorded in verse 3, left Lazarus' side, Lazarus was ill. But sometime in that route, from when he left to when he reported to Jesus that he was ill, Lazarus had died. And then how many days was Jesus delayed? Two days. That's three. And now there was a day's journey from where he was to go into Bethany to where Lazarus was, so that is Four days. And what is the significance to four days? To a Jewish mind, there was a massive significance. Because to the Jewish mind, 
they thought that within three days of someone's death, the soul of that person would circle and gravitate over that dead body. And it could re-enter that body and bring life again to it. But at the fourth day, there was no hope. It was all over. In fact, on the fourth day, the mourners would be triggered and they would come in and begin to support the family of the deceased. So four days had passed. Look with me then in verses 18 and 19. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Verse 20, so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. True to form, Martha, the type A of the two sisters, when she hears that Jesus is outside, she immediately goes out and meets Jesus. Mary, the type B of the sisters, remained right there in the home. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, that's a really interesting statement, is it not? And it's one of those verses that I wish we could see some body language. And I wish we could hear a tone. How did she mean that? There's two possible ways she meant that. One was honoring. Jesus, if you would have been here... Man, I know he wouldn't have died. But there's also a possibility that was the opposite of that, and it was a scolding. Like, hey, if you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. Now, it's often where preachers and Bible teachers can look upon someone here and scold them and belittle them for their poor theology. Now, She could have been present in John chapter 4 when Jesus healed an official son. And he wasn't even present doing that. It wasn't necessary for Jesus to be present. But let us give her some grace here this morning. You and I, when we experience the loss of a loved one, we often sway back and forth from what we know to be true And what our feelings are informing us about. And I think that's what we have here in the case of Martha. She's swaying back and forth. Sometimes these events can really rock our faith. This week I was reminded of that with a a young man that grew up in a religious family. He went to youth group. And, And at the time he was even thinking about serving as a missionary. But he had a sister during his high school years that experienced lupus, a very painful illness. And, and he'd come home from school and hear her crying out in pain. And he's like, God, would you please heal her, save her from this sickness? And God didn't do that. And she died a very painful death. It was years later where this young man's dad, maybe still mourning over the death of his daughter, had a had a meal with his wife, went upstairs, and took his life. That young man is Ted Turner, the founder of CNN, the, the once president of the, or owner of the Atlanta Braves. And he would say at the moment that he found out that his dad had died, if this is who God is, I want nothing 
to do with them. And he, quote-unquote, walked away from the faith and would even say this, that Christianity is a religion for losers. So, so with Martha experiencing this loss, let's give her some grace. You and I have experienced stuff like that too, haven't we? Where we, we've experienced loss. I say, we know this to be true, but I'm really struggling to hang on to this at this time. And we see here in verse 22, Martha continues, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. This is Jesus' response in verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Jesus will often do this when he is in a conversation with someone. Sometimes he'll ask questions to try to get some more out of them. Sometimes he'll make a statement attempting to get what's going on in their heart. Proverbs 20 verse 5 says, The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. One commentator said, Jesus often nourishes a little flame. And he says, hey, look here. Your brother will rise again. Her response in verse 24 is a theologically sound one. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. In the Old Testament, these Jews, they believed that those that were dead, they would see again. Think of Job chapter 19, verses 25 and 26. Job said, For I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. But this teaching seems to be a distant one for her. And then we get to this statement. The statement's found in 25 and 26, the basis of our text today, where he says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So what does this mean when Jesus says, I am the resurrection? I think it means at least two things. The first is this. Jesus is the source of eternal life. You see what it says there in verse 25? Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And this thought is repeated throughout the Gospels. In John chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. John 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21 says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. It's no small wonder in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, that this is a passage that is often read and taught from at funeral services of Christians. It is a powerful reminder that because of Jesus, if that loved one is a Christian and you are a Christian, you will see them again. And may that put wind in your sails today, loved ones, who have lost someone in this past year or the past couple of years. It matters that Jesus rose from the dead because you will see that person again. 
in my office, there's a, there's a picture of Joel and Evie. And those of you in our church family know that, that name. Evie was a young lady, a school teacher in our area, had been married to Joel just for a few weeks. And it stunned us all when she, was, when she passed away. And it, and it was a, really a challenge for our church. But every once in a while, I'll look up on my bookshelf and I'll see the, the wedding picture of Joel and Evie. And the resurrection means everything at that moment. To say, we will see Evie again. Fill in the blank of people that you will see again as a result of Jesus being the resurrection and as a result of him being raised to life. There's a second thing that I think we see in this passage as well. It is that Jesus is not only the source of eternal life, but Jesus is the destination of eternal life. Remember, we exist to worship him, to glorify him. He is the ends for us. It's not that we come to Jesus so that he'll take us where we want to go. I have a, a little boy. He's not little anymore, and he's not in here right now, so I could tell the story. I think he's in the nursery, probably helping there. But Elijah, he's our second oldest. And there was a time, this might surprise you, where he was shy, because he's not shy anymore. But I remember when my father would come and visit. Uh, he would come to visit. We lived out in a different state at that time. So when Elijah would see his grandfather, my dad, he would be shy. and He would stand off at a distance. And so my father was very wise is very wise, and he took a a container of cookies. And he would enter the room, and he would open that container. And this still works today for Elijah, by the way. (laughs) And he'd start walking over, and he would grab that cookie, and then he would run back to the opposite corner. It was like, I don't want a relationship with you. I just want your cookie. (laughs) And, you know, I'm afraid that that message might be portrayed in Christianity too. Come to Jesus to get eternal life. Come to Jesus to get your cookie. But don't worry about a relationship. And that is not the message of the Bible. Those of you who have studied the Gospel of John are aware that this is not the only place where Jesus makes this statement, I am the resurrection. There are seven different times throughout the Gospel of John where he offers this, I am. And now what's the significance to those two words? In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, there in the burning bush, the I am is a way of identifying God. So when Jesus says each time, I am, it's a way of saying, I am deity, I am God. In John chapter 6, as he is teaching the people about how the manna was brought down from heaven in the, in the Exodus account, he would tell them, listen, if you want sustenance, if you want nutrition for your soul, he would say this, I am the bread of life. And he would also say, when in John chapter 8, when there was darkness and people didn't know who to follow or how to follow, Jesus would say in John 8 verse 12, I am the light. And in John chapter 10, when they're like, how can I enter into a relationship with God? Through what means do I do that? Jesus said, I am the door. 
And in the same chapter, when they were looking for someone to nurture them, to lead them, he would say, I am the good shepherd, chapter 10, verse 11. And in John chapter 14, which way should I go? Which path should I pursue? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in John chapter 15, when the disciples were hearing these words, they were saying, how can I bear fruit? How can I go out and take this message that you've given to me and proclaim it? Jesus said, I am the vine. Jesus does not exist for you to get what you want. Jesus exists for you to have a relationship with him. And so this eternal life is tied to that relationship. In John 17, verse 3, Jesus prayed to the Father and he says, This is eternal life, that they would know the true God, Jesus Christ, whom you sent. And then he closes that in the last part of verse 26. And he says, Do you believe this? In verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, whom is coming into the world. So let's just now kind of quickly close out this story. So there is Jesus and Martha, and then there is Jesus and Mary, the other sister. And she comes to Jesus. We find this in verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. That is exactly what our sister Martha had said in verse 21. Listen to what verse 33 says. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. When he saw the mourning that was taking place over the loss of Lazarus, here is a wonderful expression. He was deeply moved. Now, the Greek word here is a difficult one for us to translate. I actually have a little note in my Bible that says it could say indignant. He was angry. J.D. Greer as he was handling this, he quotes a scholar that says that the word really has the connotation of an animal snorting in anger. It's as if a bull is, is being threatened by something and he is about ready to pounce or attack. And this is the word that is used of Jesus as he sees the consequences of sin and death on this God-fearing family. John Calvin says this word indicates not sympathy, so much as Jesus preparing to enter a ring, like a wrestler preparing for the contest. He groans because the violent tyranny of death, which he had to overcome, now stands before his eyes. It's as if to say, I'm about ready to get in the ring and deal with this sin and death. He is putting the gloves on, and he's about ready to strike a blow to sin and death a, do, a, a blow that will eventually receive a kill shot on resurrection morning. This speaks of the passion and enthusiasm that Jesus has against sin and death. Verse 34 says, And he said, Where have you laid them? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then the shortest verse of the Bible, verse 35 says, Jesus wept. Now, have you ever thought through this? 
If Jesus knew what was going to happen in just a matter of moments, that Lazarus would be raised from the dead, why go through all the trouble of crying at this moment? I think the answer for that is that we have a high priest that sympathizes with our weaknesses and our suffering. How many here this morning, you don't raise your hands, but are experiencing some pain this morning? You're like, I'm committed to living a life that glorifies God, but I understand why is this pain being brought into my life? I don't understand this delay that God has provided in my life. And and I certainly, I don't understand the route that he is taking. Perhaps you would be comforted today to see that Jesus came alongside and he wept with them. It has been said here by one teacher that there is no other story in all of the Gospels where we see Jesus' sympathy on greater display than this one right here where he weeps with them. Then let's just close out as we look at the next part here. In verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone, Martha. The city of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an order for he has been dead for four days. You know, if a man does not take a shower in four days, he's going to smell. But if he doesn't take a breath in four days, he is really going to smell. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed that you would see the glory of God? That's what this is all about, is that God would be glorified and and you would see that I am who I claim to be. Verse 41, so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I stand this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. Verse 43, and we had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is a defining moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. Those of you who have studied the Gospel of John realize that it is outlined by seven miraculous signs. And this is the seventh of the most dramatic sign. It is the most compelling miracle of them all that he is who he claimed to be. However, we wrap up John 11 by those who have observed this by seeking a plan to arrest them. Now Lazarus was a mere man. And he would one day die and remain dead. And his resurrection pales in comparison to Jesus' resurrection. He remains alive to this day. And what further proof does one need that Jesus is who he claimed to be than that he was raised from the dead? He is not only resurrected, he is the resurrection. And so I close this morning by asking you the same question that Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe this? Lazarus' story provides a great picture of the gospel. Here is a man that was dead, 
completely lifeless. Then the Bible says that because of this sin that was brought into the world, all of us are spiritually dead. We, we don't even have a breath. And we see in this passage that his only hope is that the word of Christ was spoken to him. And this morning, the word of Christ has been spoken to you, speaking to you about your sin condition. Would God give you the faith to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he died for your sins, that he was raised from the dead three days later, that you could experience life, life eternal, not only in this world, but the world to come. The invitation is extended to you. Come out of that sin and darkness. Receive forgiveness. Believe in me and walk with me. Do you believe this? Entrust yourself to him. I remember hearing Dr. Donald Barnhouse, a pastor of a church there in Philadelphia. One day his wife tragically died and he officiated the funeral service in which he taught Psalm 23. And though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And as Pastor Barnhouse was was returning home from the funeral. He had his children in the vehicle. And they were asking him to explain what he meant by the valley of the shadow of death. And as they were driving, this large truck passed by. And it cast a a massive shadow over their vehicle. Pastor Barnhouse said to his children, Now would you rather have had that truck hit us or that shadow hit us? And the children said, well, that's an easy, easy question to answer, Dad. We would want the shadow to hit us. And he says, that's right. But one man 2,000 years ago took the truck upon himself that we would only experience a shadow of the death. That truck represents sin of which Jesus took. And then that sin and death was conquered by Jesus himself So that when we die, it is only a shadow, something that we do not need to fear. But because of the resurrection of Jesus, it just transitions us into eternity. Do you believe this? Let's have a time of prayer together as Mr. Scott and Ms. Vanna come. And, And you know, I'm not a salesman. I'm not trying to seal a deal today. I'm not trying to talk you into something that you might not want to do, but I would ask you to explore these truths. Jesus did raise from the dead. Jesus is the resurrection. Jesus makes it possible to experience eternal life. And we're not going to sing an invitation this morning, but before we leave here today, I want to just give you some time to think about this, okay? What would... What would the Lord have you do with this message? Would you say, I believe this, that my only hope of eternal life is what Jesus has done. I'm like a dead man. I'm like a dead woman. The only hope I have is that the word of Christ is spoken into my life, and I believe it, and I repent of my sins, and I believe that he died and was raised to life. Let me just give you a few moments to ponder this. And if the Lord would lead you to pray and and trust yourself into him, I would ask you to obey him.
Father, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for Jesus. He he is everything. He does not exist to give us what we want. He exists that we would glorify him and that we would know him through a relationship in this life and a life that follows. I pray around this room that there would be people that have trusted you, have been born again this morning. And help us to come alongside and encourage them and help them in their walk, if that's true. In Jesus' name, amen. If that is something you have done today where you have trusted Jesus, I would love to talk to you further about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We've been using this little booklet called The New Believer's Guide to Effective Christian Living. And uh, we finished a class last week for new believers, and we would love to start a new class. Uh, But here's how you could help me. If you've trusted Christ today, you could come by and say, I did that, and I uh, I would love to learn what it looks like to be a follower of him.